Hey, thank you for tuning in to the Relove Podcast. This is Pastor Rico. Our hope is that today's message adds life and power to your journey as you grow. Thanks for joining us. Amen. Hey, we're, we're excited to be here in the place of the Lord today. Uh, let me hear you put your hands together if you, if you feel blessed this morning. If you feel blessed. Amen. Amen. Yes, we are... Uh, we, many of us, are, are, are coming off of the, 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 the high of, of last weekend's victory. Uh, obviously, we uh, serve a risen king, uh, but we also serve a king that brings people to church. We serve a king uh, that, that, that is active in people's lives, and last week we got to experience that in a special way. If you are joining us online and you were with us last week, uh, hey, we wish you could be here, but we're so grateful that you, are, that you are joining us nonetheless. And all of you that are here in this worship space, this morning, I just want to pray a quick prayer um, over this over this time of worship together. God, as we jump into your word, Father, uh, please jump into our hearts in a way that we don't even give you permission to, God. We are, we are thankful for our opportunity to worship this morning. In your name I pray, amen. Amen. Um, we're continuing today with part two of the series that Paula kicked us off with last week for our special Easter service. Uh, and this is called Get Out of the Grave. Get Out of the Grave. And we've been pressing really all the month of April for all of you to understand the power and importance of your story. Each of you have a story. We don't often tell it. We don't often share it. We don't often even really think about it. Uh, but there exists in your story um, un containable power to meet someone where they are in a story similar to yours. And, 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 this, and this month, as we press into the story, uh, Paula last week started us off with part one of uh, our sermon series, which was called Before the Story. She took some time and took us through Luke chapter 23, the couple verses that speak on Simon the Cyrene, the gentleman that was pulled in to carry the cross of Christ. This is before the crucifixion, before the resurrection. That was before the story. And last week, Paula called us out of our graves of shame and challenged us to tell our story. Today, uh, we're going to be jumping into part two of that series, and this message is called More to the Story. More to the Story. We're going to be this week and next week actually diving into how to tell your story. I don't want to just keep yapping at you about, hey, your story, your story is powerful. I recognize that there are challenges that make it difficult for you to tell your story. I personally experienced that difficulty myself. It's not always easy to sum up your story. And many of us come from church backgrounds where this word testimony is such a daunting and, and overwhelming word that just feels like I don't have one of those. I don't, I don't have a testimony. That's all right. You ain't got to have a testimony, but you have a story. You have a story. And so this week and next week, we're going to be looking in the, in, in the book of John in chapter 20. Um, and today, we're really just going to experience a reminder that God will use something as definitive as death to demonstrate the power in his promise of life. That's what we're going to be looking at today. And next week, we're going to be finishing the month of April and this series, Get Out of the Grave, with a sermon called Glory to the Story. So today, we're going to be talking about more to the story. I'm going to ask you uh, to turn your attention to the book of John chapter 20. We're going to go ahead and read from the word of the Lord today. John chapter 20, we're going to be looking at verse 1 through 10 this morning, and the next week we'll pick up after verse 10. But it says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw 
that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Someone say saw. Saw. Verse 2. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. Verse 3 says, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw, someone say saw, saw. the strips of linen lying there. Verse 7 says, as well as the cloth and that had been wrapped, that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, the cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw, somebody say saw, and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. How many of you have seen but don't understand? Seen but don't understand. Verse 10 says, then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Back to where they were staying. We're talking about more to the story today. More to the story. What I, I, I want to um, share with you all uh, the name of an author of a book that has inspired par- portions of this sermon. Uh, his name is Ian Morgan. Um, he was one of, the, one of the founders and the psychologists behind the Enneagram. And in his book uh, titled The Story of You, he outlines four ways that you can transform your story, four ways that you can transform your story. And today, I'm going to add a fifth one to his four, and we're going to talk about the five ways you can tell your story. So the first one, step one of what he says, I'm just going to review these steps because we're going to do steps one and two this week and steps three, four, and five next week. The step one of how to tell your story is simply to see. Step one is to see. See where your old story began. Step two is to own. I'm just going to go over these briefly. The step two is to own, to take ownership of the shadows and the strengths of your story. Step three is to awaken. Wake up to the things in your present life that pull you back into the story of your past. That's awaken. Step four is to rewrite, where he calls us to rename and reauthor the story you live today. And the one I'm adding today is recite. Recite your story to help others understand theirs. So as you can see, the synonym here is soar. He wants you to see, own, awaken, rewrite, and I want you to recite your story. We're going to jump into the first two of those steps today. We'll finish up with the the next three next week. But... I want to refocus on John chapter 20, verse 1 and 2, just the first two verses. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one that Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Now, I want you to recognize that when I read this scripture, Something about her response to the empty tomb is telling to me. Because I don't see that she looked at it and said, wow, the tomb is empty. Hey, let me go tell the guys that wasn't her response. Her initial response to the empty tomb was that of fear, that of 
panic. See, the tomb that we see today as a projection of peace for her was really just perceived as a prompt for panic. The empty tomb that today we see as the manifested prophecy of the Son of God, Mary perceived as broken promises. Can you imagine how she must have felt in that time? Jesus, a friend of hers, a close friend, she's in the midst of grief. She goes to the tomb. How many of you have gone to the graveside of a loved one? There's something ministering to the spirit about that. And here she is going to the graveside of her loved one to find that he is not there. I think we typically have the tendency to look in retrospect at the stories in the Bible and understand the beginning from the end, whereas Mary was in the story. She didn't understand that there was more to the story. She was in it. So I want you to place yourself in her shoes and imagine what it really felt like to show up to the empty grave of Jesus. She did not have a reason to rejoice. She was panicking when she went back to the other two disciples. Can you imagine Approaching the place where the man who had held in his hands every hurt of your heart, where he was laid to rest to find that his body was absent from the grave. Can you imagine the feelings of abandonment, the feelings of hopelessness? Can you imagine how she felt? A cave with no savior, a grave with no God, it was salt to the open wound of her grief. This was her friend, Jesus, who was no longer in the grave that they had laid his body. The empty tomb elicited emotions within Mary, not explicitly explained in scripture, but that are in fact implied by the context. See, when, I, when we look at the context of scripture, I want you to understand that there is a larger story containing the smaller story. The, the, the word that, that theologians use to describe that larger story is called a meta-narrative. Meta-narrative. It's a larger story, an overarching uh, plan that God has for all of humanity, right? And, and, and within that story is your story. It's my story. It's a story of Reloved Church, the story of your home, your family. These are smaller stories within the meta-narrative. See, now... Mary had her own story. We're talking about the Easter story. We're talking about the, the, the after-resurrection story today. But Mary had a story of her own. And many, to many people, Mary was a prostitute. She was never married. She never had children, as the Bible records. So perhaps that's the reason she is perceived as a woman of loose character. Personally, I don't think that's the real reason why. I think the real reason why is perhaps because the leaders of the church at the time, who happened to be men, were challenged by the fact that Christ unapologetically empowered women. So what do you do? You turn her story into one of a prostitute. You diminish her value as a person. You call her less than. That's what you do. So see, she had a story, right? Mary had a story. Stick with me. In, in, in addition to that, uh, uh, many others just think of Mary as a woman who was once possessed. See, because it says in the book of Luke, cha verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 2, that, that, that Jesus pulled seven devils out of her, seven demons, that she was just a woman who was once possessed. She was a prostitute to some, a possessed woman by others. See, because Mary had a story. But there's more to her story. Historians believe that Mary may have been a worker in the fish markets or a hairdresser. 
See, but we never perceive her in the light of her professionalism. We don't hear that part. And there are extra biblical resources that allow us to do studies on people's research, their lineage, and understand what they may have done in the time of Jesus, even outside of the Bible. But we don't, we don't hear about those things in the rhetoric of the modern church, do we? The narrative, the story that's told about Mary is one of a, a, a loose-charactered woman, a, a prostitute, a possessed woman. Even in Luke chapter 7, when the story is told of the time she broke an alabaster box, to pour on the feet of Jesus oil that was the same value of one year's salary just to show Jesus her love and affection for him. She is painted as a person who was broken, a sinner who was at the feet of Jesus begging for forgiveness. She is not uplifted for the character of her sacrifice. She is not perceived for the positive attributes of who she is. See, because Mary had a story, but there is more to Mary's story. We rarely hear the story of Mary Magdalene in a way that represents the positive nature of her heart. Because we don't often see her as a powerful minister. But there's more to her story. Jesus had thousands of unnamed disciples whose name never made it into the Bible, but Mary's did. And I think that speaks something about Mary. In fact, her name is one of the few names that occurs in all four of the Synoptic Gospels. Mary was also someone with a story. The theologian St. Augustine called her the Apostle of Apostles, but we don't hear that part of her story. She helped actually initiate the movement of the gospel to the western regions. But we don't hear about Mary the evangelist. We don't hear about that. See, because there's more to her story. We don't hear that she's a trusted companion of Jesus because Mary Magdalene is among Jesus' earliest followers, one theologian says from uh, uh, the University of Iowa, professor of religious studies. She is one of the most significant figures in Christianity, but we don't see Mary that way. There is more to her story. A friend, faithful even after death, Mary was the one sole person who was recorded in scripture to be encountered by Christ after his resurrection. That was Mary. Christ could have chosen anyone, but he chose Mary. The beginning of our scripture today says, while it was still dark, Mary, Mary was a pursuer of Christ, somebody who was following him even in the darkness. She was up early in the morning at the tomb looking for Christ. See, because Mary had a story, but there was more to her story. And there is more to yours as well. There is more to your story as well. And I want to call upon you to consider the untold story of Mary. Because I'm going to tell you something. If you don't tell your story, the enemy will. And we see that in the life of Mary. We see the record. She didn't have a voice as a woman in those times. If you don't tell your story, the enemy will. What is your untold story? Too many of you are sitting silently in the shadows of Satan lies about your story. We're choosing not to open up our mouths, not to tell people what Christ has done for me, not to sit down and write my story out so I can make it more cohesive. We are making conscious and deliberate decisions to be silent and indifferent to the things that God has done in our lives. 
And the enemy steals your story and tells it as his own with his twist. And then the sick part about it is that we begin believing the lies that the enemy tells about the story that we could have told. That's my story to tell. I was the one that Christ, I was in the hospital room. I was on my knees that night. I experienced that life. I experienced that power. You have a story to tell and because we're not telling it, Satan is. I want you to see your story this morning. I want you to see your story. Hebrews chapter 12 says that God is the author of, and finisher of our faith. He is the one writing our story. Will you tell it? In order to tell it, you have to see it first. You need to see your story. You need to take time to look back upon the things that you've experienced, that you've endured, the times when you've seen Christ come through in your life, and actually see your story. But I don't want you just to see it in a way that is uh, like you're watching a movie. I want you to see it as to perceive it, right? Because the first step to transformation is to see where your story begins, in the, in the comic book world, we call this, uh, I said we, like I'd be reading comic books. I just in the Marvel movies. I'm trying, I'm trying, I was trying to pose real quick. I couldn't, the spirit grabbed hold of me. It's not we, I like the Marvel movies. Uh, but those are called origin stories. So I'm gonna ask you, what is your origin story? What is your origin story? Because what you have to do when you see your story is unearth the hurtful events you've experienced, the unchallenged, the taken-for-granted beliefs, the unhelpful internalized messages from childhood that continue to rule your life today. What is the narrative of your life? You have to see your story. Literally write it down. See, th this first step, see, seeing your story, it actually, it actually, when you see your story, it helps you uncover the false narratives. It helps you, it helps you realize the self-limiting um, language that navigates your life. It, it helps you recognize where in your life you have self-sabotaged. That's why you need to go back and see. In order for you to find what you have determined as your way of receiving love, what you have determined as, as, as your way of, of being worthy of something. Now, let me, let, me, let me make this a little more simple. So some of us may have come up in homes where you have a, 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 an alcoholic father, or you may have a drug-addicted mother, or you may have had an absentee brother. You learn something about yourself through those experiences that as a child, you do not have the cognitive capacities to process. So today you are affected by those stories where you are told that, hey, because my brother was absent from my life, I cannot go and ask my mother for help because she's too busy crying about him. So now you have a savior complex and the value of you and your worth is determined to you by the good things that you do for other people because of your childhood narrative. Some of you may be experiencing a, a, a father who was absent or, or maybe had an addiction. And in that instance, what do you learn? You learn something about men that you now learn, try to unlearn in your marriage, marrying the same type of man your father was. You have a story. You have to see your story. Some of us have become the parents we didn't like. 
Some of us have become the ones that we, I'm never going to be like that. But because you are failing to go back and see your story, to perceive it, to recognize it, to process it, you are now reenacting the same cycles of unhealthy relationship building with your children that you experienced that have created in you who you are today. These are cycles because we don't ta- stop to see our story. You got to see your story. I want you to see your story. Mary's response to the empty tomb was panic. When Mary saw the empty tomb, she was forced to see her past. She was forced to come face to face with her old story and confront every lie she had ever believed about herself. That's Jesus. He said, I wasn't a prostitute. He said, I am healed. He said, I'm not possessed, but he's dead. So that must mean I am these things. Consider, consider her her battle. Consider her story. Consider what she sees and the narratives that are in her her head. Mary had a story that was challenged by the empty tomb. Where we praise the empty tomb, she was scared of the empty tomb. Are you still living in that story? Are you still the child who fears your father? Are you still the child who's afraid to ask your mother for help because you don't want to burden her? Are you still the child who's acting out the same things that your parents taught you? Is that still your story or do you have a new story? See, because seeing our story simply gives us the liberation to recognize that that's no longer my story. The whole end game of step one, seeing your story, is recognizing that it's not your story anymore. That's an old story. That's not the story I live in anymore. That's not who I am. I've gone through these things and I've learned these things. I am a different person. That is not my story. I have a different story today. Your old story was a grave. Christ is not in the grave anymore. Why are you? Why do you stay in that place of pain? Simply because we're not seeing our story. We're going to move on to verse 3. We're going to read the next seven verses, 3 through 10, and we're going to look at the second step of this storytelling process. John chapter 20, verse 3 through 10. It says, now remember what just happened, right? Mary saw the empty tomb. She was fearful. She panicked. She ran back and she told uh, uh, Paul, uh, it, uh, I'm sorry, Peter and John. And so now they're responding. In verse three, it says, so Peter and the other disciple, the other disciple is John, just for some context. The book of John was written by the apostle John. Um, and the apostle John often refers to himself as the other disciple or the one that Jesus loved. So when you're wondering who that is, that's who, that's who we're talking about. It's Peter and John. Uh, so verse three says, so Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Verse five, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Someone say looked in, looked in. Verse 6, then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw, someone say saw, saw, strips of linen lying there. 
as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Verse 8, finally the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Someone say saw. Saw. Yeah. Verse 9, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Back to where they were staying. You see this reoccurring theme in in John's account of what happened after the resurrection. You see this concept of saw. There's other themes that I had to battle in my mind this week about which ones to go with. There's other themes. Another theme is tell. Then he said, and then she said, and then she ran back and told, and then they... There's, there's that theme as well. But today we're focusing on the see theme because that's step one of our process is to see. And you see this clear in day of scripture. All these times something was seen. It was seen. It was seen. A story was seen. There's something that was seen. In verse five, it says, looked at the strips of linen. Some verses use the word, some versions use the word saw. Uh, now in the New Testament, we recognize that that was written in the language of Greek and some Aramaic. But when we study the actual words, we see that in verse five, verse six, And verse 8, although the word is the same, it is either saw or looked, they each have three different meanings because there's three different Greek words used in those. Okay, so I want to I bring to your attention what the actual language is. We miss so much in our understanding of Scripture by just having it watered down in the English language. There's power in the word nonetheless, but we do miss a lot of the nuanced meanings. And so in verse 5, the word that's used there for looked in verse 5 is actually the most simple form of the verb look. It just means that he looked, he observed, he saw. That's it. Okay. So he saw. Now, verse 6, it says that he saw the strips of linen. Now, this word saw actually means that he wondered about the meaning of that linen sitting there. This word is the same word that was used a few chapters earlier when Jesus encountered the woman at the well. And she said, I perceive that you are a prophet, which means I have an idea. I perceive something. I'm understanding something. I I, I wonder, right? That's That's what this was. So the first time, Verse 5, looked was simply that he saw. The second one is that Peter saw the linen cloths and asked himself, what does this mean? Now in verse 8, stay with me, in verse 8 it says that he saw and what? Believed. He saw and believed. Now saw in this instance is to understand something with comprehension. To understand something with comprehension. John understood something he didn't understand before. Now, you notice John stepped into the tomb after. Peter rushed right in. But John came in after. And John, when he saw that linen, he understood something he did not see before. What I'm pointing out to you all is that this second step of this process is one where you're wrestling. You're wrestling. When you see your story, now you've got to wrestle with your story. We see the disciples in this instance wrestling to understand the meaning of this empty tomb. Why are the linens laid there? Why are they folded as if nobody was ever buried there? Why are the head linens over here? Why are these body linens? Why is the tomb empty? Who rolled the rock away? Where's the, where's the guards? They're struggling to understand something. They're seeing a story in front of their eyes that they are trying to understand. And I want to challenge you for step two of this process, which is to own your story. Owning is the process of struggling through the meaning of what happened to you. The meaning of the things that you experience is to take ownership of the shadows and the strengths of your stories. There's two parts here. When you own your story, you need to take ownership of the shadows, the negatives, the valleys, and the strengths, the positives, the victories. 
There's no part in this process when you're going to focus only on the bad. See, because when you own your story, you wrestle through what these things mean, what you're seeking is clarity on how they affect you today in this own portion. I need to sometimes first own who I've become as a result of my experiences before I can liberate myself into the person God's calling me to be. Sometimes I need to go back and not just see and recognize, but I need to take ownership of the people I've hurt because of the grave I refuse to come out of. I need to take ownership of the people I've refused to forgive because of the grave I refuse to come out of. I need to go back and look at how I've changed as a person and some of my ineptitude, some of my shortcomings, my, 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 my moral failures that I've experienced over my life. I need to own those things before I can step into the person that I am today. Before I can tell my new story, I got to own my old one. And this is what this process is about, is about owning your story. John and Peter were on a journey to understand something they had not understood before. They're attempting to make sense of something that challenged their understanding of their story with Jesus. And understanding your story with Jesus tells you something about your story with you. John had a story too, not just Mary. See, John had a story. John is recorded in scripture as being a person with a dangerous temper, right? John was one half of the sons of thunder. No, we ain't talking about Thor. Uh, I'm on this Marvel kick today. Thanks, Brandon. Appreciate you, man. Uh, no, we ain't talking about Thor. We're, you know who we're talking about is we're talking about James and John. John is one half of the brothers of thunder. That's the name that Jesus gave them because of their, 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 their impulsiveness, right? Because they're quick at the mouthness. This is who these guys were. He, he had a dangerous temper. In fact, he's recorded in scripture to be rebuked by Jesus quite often. We're talking about John because he had a story. He was rebuked in Luke 9:54 because he said, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? We'll call fire down from heaven to destroy them. And Jesus rebuked him. He was rebuked again when he said, he asked Jesus, can we be at the right hand of you in heaven? See, John had a story. John had a reputation. He was a person who was prideful. John was someone that he thought he knew it all. He had been trained and, and understood things, and, and he was real close to Jesus. Now, 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 John had a story, and it's likely that he spent much of his ministry being embarrassed about the fact that he was rebuked so frequently by Jesus. John had a story. John was only a fisherman before he was in his ministry with Jesus. He was not a successful tax collector like Matthew. He wasn't an intelligent doctor like Luke. But John was just a simple old fisherman. Not that educated. He came from humble beginnings. See, John had a story, but there is more to his story. John actually is also affectionately referred to as, he affectionately refers to himself as the one that Jesus loved. So as you go through the book of John, you see that he's referring to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. See, it's funny because we can look at that and call John arrogant. But I look at that and see that John understood something about his relationship with God. And maybe if more of us walked around introducing ourselves as the one that Christ loved, we would actually be able to step into our new story. See, there's more to John's story. We can call John arrogant because of what he thought of himself, or we can call him fulfilled in the story he was living with Christ. See, because John had a story, but there's more to his story. What is the narrative you tell about yourself? 
What is the story you're telling yourself? It matters less what people are telling about you as long as you're opening your mouth and telling your story. And in this instance, not only to other people, in this owning part, you need to talk to yourself. I'm telling you to talk to yourself. What is the narrative you have about your relationship with God, with your spouse, with your husband, with your daughter, with your friends, with your ex? What is the relationship you have? What are these stories that you are telling yourself? John had a story, but there's more to his story. One of the three disciples Jesus kept closest in scripture was John. Peter, James, and John. John wasn't just a hothead. He was a beloved friend of Christ. John had a story, but there's more to his story. John actually goes on to write five of the most powerful books in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, John 1, 2, and 3, and the book of Revelation. John has a story, but there's more to his story. He was one of the most influential ministers in Ephesus, and he was exiled to the island of Patmos as a result of his faith and the power of his ministry. John has a story, but there's more to his story. And there's more to your story as well. We're not only talking about John here, though. There was a second disciple, and that second disciple was Peter. And many of us know him well. Oh, but Peter, what do we know about Peter? Peter was quick-tempered, wasn't he? Peter was quick-tempered. Peter was, was known for being easily angered. Yeah, Peter had a story. Uh, Peter was the one who was violent. Peter was the one who was put in his place by Jesus when he healed the ear of the centurion soldier for whipping out his sword and cutting off the ear too quickly. Peter had a story. See, uh, uh, Peter was a blasphemer. Peter was a coward, and he was a betrayer. Peter denied Jesus three times. His best friend, the one who only hours earlier, he said he would never deny while he was having his feet washed by Jesus. He denied Jesus three times. Peter had a story, but there is more to his story. Peter's name literally is Petros, which means rock. And it's an indication of the promise that Christ made to him when he said, Peter, you are the rock upon which my church will be built. Peter had a story, but there's more to his story. Peter was a friend of Jesus. He was a part of the inner circle, just like James. In fact, Jesus was directing his message to Peter in the, in the post-resurrection breakfast they had out in the beach. And he said, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Peter said, yes, of course I love you. Peter, do you? Jesus knew he loved him. Jesus knew Peter loved him. Peter wasn't just a hothead. Peter had a story, but there was more to his story. See, Peter is the only disciple ever recorded, in fact, the only person ever recorded in history to walk on water. Yeah? There was 11 other disciples in the boat. But he was the only one to get out of it. There's more to Peter's story. Peter preached the most powerful evangelistic sermon of his day on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 people came to Christ that day. Upon that day, in Acts chapter 2, the church was formed because Peter was the rock upon which the church was built. Peter's recorded to possibly be the first pope, and he died a martyr. See, because Jesus had a, or Peter had a story, but there is more to Peter's story. In this second step of owning your story, you have to tell your story in a way that you can own it. 
You need to dig it up. You need to understand it, but you need to take ownership of it. Peter was not all butterflies and apple pies. We recognize that, but Peter had a story and there was more to his story than we typically see. And there's more to your story. See, exploring the shadows as well as the strengths of your story is what we need to do in part two, which is own. We have to own how the old story hurt you and how it helped you. See, because there's a time in your childhood when that story was what got you by. Listen to me. Some of, some of us have developed narratives in our mind as a result of the need to survive. And I don't want you to feel down about that. Some of us have believed lies about ourselves as a result of our need to cope. As a result of our need to have hope for tomorrow, we have told ourselves things that served us in our childhood that no longer serve us today. That's right. I, 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 don't, I don't want you to think that I'm just yelling at you about you not telling the truth about yourself. I want to also demonstrate sensitivity to the fact that some of y'all have gone through things that you've been 100% a victim to. You couldn't have done nothing to stop it. You couldn't have done nothing to, to, to prevent it. And you didn't create it. I want to acknowledge your victimhood. But I want to call you out of that grave of victimhood. I don't want you to stay in that place where that narrative that once got you by as a child, that story that you told yourself, that lie that you needed as a coping mechanism just to navigate through the day. Some of y'all were abused by somebody that you needed to lie to yourself about to make yourself believe the lies you were telling other people because you didn't feel safe telling somebody that you were being abused. I want you guys to hear me. I understand this. But come out of that grave of victimhood. That is not your story anymore. You take the time you need to see your story and you make the time and do the work to own your story. That happened to you. That's not who you are. That's not where you are anymore. You cannot heal without being relentlessly honest about you who you have become in your story and who it has made you today. You cannot heal until you own that, until you're honest with yourself about that, until you're honest with how the false beliefs and unconscious choices you made when you were trapped in your old story have damaged your self-worth. You need to understand that part. This is your opportunity to grieve the missed stories to grieve the failures, to grieve the losses. That's what owning your story is. I'm not telling you to brush past it and not to feel it. In fact, quite the opposite. I'm telling you to feel it deeply. I'm telling you to take time to consider what it means to you. I'm telling you to feel as much as you can. If you can cry, cry harder. If you can laugh, laugh louder. If you're uncomfortable, be uncomfortable longer. Feel every emotion attached to your situation because in that experience of ex feeling these emotions, in the experience of mourning, there's joy on the other side. The Bible says that weeping may endure for the night, but joy cometh in the morning. We recognize that means when the sun rises that joy comes, but we also recognize that in the morning of your situation, the M-O-U-R-N, in the crying of your situation, there is joy. In the feeling of your situation, there is joy. In the morning, there is joy. On the other side of the negative emotions that you're feeling, on the other side of your pain is the promise. And that joy comes in the morning. You have to feel these things to own them. You got to see them to feel them. Don't stay in your grave. Christ is no longer in his grave. 
Why are you? Your story is not just a part of a bigger story, your family's story, your story is also a part of his story, a meta-narrative. God's orchestrating your life and your story in such a way to be intermingled and interwoven into the lives and stories of other people. What is your story? Once you own your story, you can boast in your weakness, like Paul says. You can have God's strength made perfect in your weakness, like it says in 2 Corinthians. You can proudly display your mended wounds, show off your scars once you've gotten past that stage two of owning your story. Deconstruct the old stories that you've told yourself about yourself. Own the beauty in your brokenness. That's what it means to own your story. Abandoning your old story and entering into a new one is hard work, you guys. I, I, I acknowledge that. It takes time and it takes patience and it takes some time for you to restart. It's not a sequential process where it's definitively done when you get to step five. That's not how this works. You're gonna have to revisit step one and see your story sometime as it changes. You're gonna have to begin reowning things as those things come to your mind. I recognize that it's not easy. And sometimes you're gonna be tempted to look back on, on, on regret, with regret, on all the years that you spent living in that false narrative. I know I've experienced that. I've been mad about the fact that, wow, this is my story now. Why was I telling myself that? You'll experience that as you go through this process as well. But don't be hurt by the time that you spent living the unhappy fiction and believing the lies about yourself that the world caused you and others. When you do feel that way, though, I want you to remember these words by Maya Angelou. Forgive yourself for not knowing what you didn't know before you learned it. See your story, own your story. Next week, we're going to continue in the same chapter and look at the next eight verses, and we're going to learn how to awaken, rewrite, and recite our story. Heavenly Father, God, we are grateful. We're grateful, God. We're grateful that because of an empty tomb, God, we can claim a victory over a story that would have been uh, eternally tragic for us. Father, I just want to pray a special prayer over each person under the sound of my voice, whether they're online, in their car, they're in their kitchen cooking, uh, whether they're here. Um, I don't know what emotions are being felt in this place here at this time, but I want to be sensitive to them. I want to pray that you send your Holy Spirit in a special way, the ultimate comforter, to wrap his arms warmly and tightly around the hurting and the brokenness that we may feel today. Father, I, in the name of Jesus, and because of this empty tomb, release the power of the Holy Spirit upon each person here today. Not that only he wraps his arms around, but he infiltrates and enters through the openness of our heart and saturates the atmosphere of our soul, that we can feel a peace that passes understanding as your word promises, God. Thank you, Lord, for healing. Thank you, Lord, for your story that makes it possible for us to live ours anew. In Jesus' holy name, amen, amen.